Welcome to the Post-Class Podcast, brought to you by TheEducatorsRoom.com. Now here's your host, Mr. Jake Miller. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode four, the Silver Tongue Superintendent. My guest today is John Kuhn, who is the superintendent at Mineral Wells Independent School District in Texas. John took a second to step away from the dissertation he's working on for his doctorate in education. So I will let this fantastic interview speak for itself. Without further ado, Mr. John Kuhn. All right, well, we are here for episode four. John, I'm calling this title the Silver-Tongued Superintendent. (laughs) Great. So my first question is, what role do you see as educators playing as advocates for education, since that seems to be your overarching umbrella as a superintendent? Yeah, so I think advocacy is, is absolutely indispensable for us as educators, and I'm pretty gratified to see, you know, from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Kentucky to I think Colorado is the latest one I've heard about uh, educators really really stepping up. I've seen it here in Texas as well over you know over the years now. In Texas, we don't have the ability to strike. Um, uh, we can lose our pensions and our jobs for that. Oh, um, but nonetheless, we've we've found ways to to advocate for for our profession. I think you know ultimately what I've seen, what I I guess what I perceive is there's been kind of a shift in. The fundamental support for public institutions has has waned, mm-hmm. and I attribute that to kind of a shift in who's who's really in charge. I think when you look back to the the time period when the state constitutions were written and public education as a as a public obligation was kind of enshrined in these founding documents and constitutions of our states, I think back then the the state was seen as 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 an entity to serve you know the 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 people the regular people it was kind of a more of a, a democratic mindset and now it, it seems like the folks that are in charge are not really just the regular people it seems like it's for the folks who donate to political campaigns yeah. and so it's it's a lot of corporations and individual and you know aristocracy almost yeah aristocracy and and there's just no support there they they look at education they look at really all the public institutions as expenses rather than investments. And I don't think they have a commitment to the greater good. I think they have a commitment to their bottom line. And so teachers, firefighters, police officers, you know, medical professionals, the people who who live and breathe the public good, they have to stand up and fight for that or, or it'll be lost. So it's probably going to be strange for some of our listeners to hear that an administrator is saying that it's the right thing to do to fight for rights as an educator or anybody else that's in a union, for example, what would you say to someone who said something like that? Well, I'm, I'm not just an administrator. I'm a dad. And so I look at public education as something that has served my children. I've got three kids, one in high school, one in junior high, and one in elementary. They've all been in public schools their entire lives. I went to a public university. I'm a small town, you know, a rural Texan. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably a lot more conservative than, than some of your listeners just by virtue of my, my upbringing and all that. Um, but I see, you know, I see the public sphere as kind of the, the backbone of our nation, the backbone of our democracy. The public school is uh, what puts us um, from, from different walks of life, different cultures, different races, different creeds, language backgrounds into one building to, to, to get to together and and be united i think that's what puts the united in united states of america yeah. uh, i really think the public school is is kind of the last entity that 
that that makes us mix and mingle as a as a society. I think when that's lost, I think it's going to do really grievous damage to our you know the national fabric. So I, I, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm an administrator. That's my job. But I, w- I was a teacher for a lot of years yeah. um, before that. And I've got three sisters. Um, they're all they've been teachers. Uh, one of them's a principal now, but but the other two are still in the classroom. My wife's a classroom teacher. You know, I've, I've been in education for 20 plus years now, so most of my friends are uh, educators, and and I just I think my commitment is not really to my job or, or my salary. My commitment is more to the I guess the the idealistic view of of education and what it means for our our nation and yeah. and my state. So, how did you end up getting so involved and opinionated? Because you know, some of our got, listeners will probably remember you as the writer of the Exhaustion of the American Teacher, which still is the Educators' Room number one all-time read article, and probably will <laughs> always be that. So, yeah, that makes what, what, was, what was the jarring moment for you where you said, "You know what? I got to leave the front of the classroom every once in a while to go do this." Yeah, so it's it's really a story in two parts. All right, the first part was. The- Teacher and, and became a became a high school principal. There was a revelation. Okay, so I had a teacher in my in my at my campus. He, he was a school board member at another campus. In a, and so he one day came to my office. He said, "I want to know why the school district where I'm a school board member, our salaries are higher than here where I work, where you're the principal." And 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 but but this is a bigger school. Shouldn't salaries be equivalent or maybe even higher here? And I said, "Well." I really don't know what explains the difference, but I'll find out for you. And I kind of didn't believe him when he first told me. It didn't make sense because I just assumed that, you know, every school district in the state of Texas funded education on a per-pupil basis, uh, basically kind of the same or equivalent, you know. Mm -hmm. I went to my superintendent, and I explained to him the the concern that my teacher had. I just needed information to go back to my teacher and say, you know, here's the reason. And the, the explanation that my superintendent gave me, which this is a Texas thing, but I think it's pretty similar elsewhere, the, the funding mechanisms that were in place, the law had, had been set up to basically provide more funding in certain areas than others, and it had to do with property wealth and things like that. But mm-hmm. essentially, uh, the revenue in my district was lower on a per-pupil basis than the revenue in the district where he was a school board member. So that infuriated me, just the unfairness of it, because – on that, that's the inputs, right? That's the revenue input side. Yep. But on the output side, I've been, you know, struggling as yeah. a as as a principal with these accountability measures that were absolutely identical from district to district. So, huh. it, you know, just immediately clicked in my brain that we're being set up to fail. And accountability report that comes out, everybody knows I'm the principal. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to you know personal pride. And uh, so, you know, I told that teacher the the reason. I said, here, the reason you're getting paid less is because the state of Texas is treating us very unfairly and funding us less than they fund, you know, the school district where your school board member. So that was the the thing that put me on the edge, you know. And then the thing that put me over the edge, a few years later, I became a superintendent, and it was 2010, um, the year of just massive budget cuts in the state of Texas. Uh, and and there's a yeah. big long – yeah, everywhere – in Texas, though, they the the, the state had uh, basically written a hot check a couple of years earlier, and and uh, some state officials had pointed it out, but the state went ahead and did it, and it, it created this uh, this crisis, you know. So my first year as a superintendent, I'm going through our budget, and I'm there's there's no way around cutting personnel because based on the kind of projections that were coming out, they were talking about a ten billion dollar cut to education. We had figures at local school districts saying, well, this is what it's going to mean for your school district. Well, for my 
little tiny school district. We had about 350 students then. Uh, we were looking at a $300,000 plus dollar, um, cut to our budget. Wow. Well, we spent the vast majority of our money on salaries. So there's, yep. you know, there's, there's just no way to get those savings out of, you know, turning out the lights more and, you know, saving electricity. Your buses are going to burn fuel. Your routes are going to stay the same. So that we had to look at, at, at salary and staff cuts. So I actually, the first thing I did, I went to the board and asked them to give me a pay cut first because I didn't want to yep. make all these hard cuts. And then everybody say, well, you, you know, you're getting off scot free. So uh-huh. I took a 10% pay cut. And then uh-huh. I was on paper looking at cutting nine staff members out of about 50 to 55. Uh, so I was under a lot of, I was under a lot of stress, you know, just personally having to deal with that because this, I was, I had gone back to my hometown as superintendent. So I knew a lot of these, these people that we uh-huh. were, you know, kind of weighing their, their, their positions. And we were having to, you know, look at cutting programs that were very important to the community and to me personally, because I had grown up in that school. Yep. And so um, to make a long story short, I went to a, a conference and the chairperson of the Senate Education Committee in Texas at that time stood up and spoke. And uh, while they were proposing these major budget cuts, simultaneously they were proposing this huge expansion of standardized testing. Yeah. Um, so they were going to go from four um, standardized tests at the high school level to 15. And they and the, and the students were going to be required to pass all 15 in order to graduate. And it was very, very you know, mean and, and uh, just a hard system. And then in addition to being a lot meaner and harder on kids and teachers, it was, it was going to cost just an arm and a leg. You know, I can't remember the dollar figure now, but it was, you know, $90 million or something just ridiculous. And so I listened to this lady give a speech and, and she, she's, you know, spit out some platitudes about, you know, oh, this is, you know, it's really bad times in Texas. And, mm-hmm. but, and we, you, you know, kind of, we feel it. pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, just infuriated me because here you're saying, oh, you know, boy, we just all have to share this pain and we're just going to have to buckle down, blah, blah, blah. And then she had the audacity to say, you know, that the, but the, the standardized testing system, that's, that's not going away. We're, we're still going to ramp it up <laughs> and all this stuff. And, uh, it just, it just really infuriated me to hear her say that. And so she took questions at the end and, and, and I stood up and, and asked a pretty impertinent question about, you know, you know, how many, how many, jobs are going to be lost at Pearson because in my tiny school district, we're looking at losing nine, you know, and uh, she was very defensive and we, we kind of had a, had words there. Um, but she said in the middle of her speech that the standardized testing system was non-negotiable. Right. And that, that one word is really what, what triggered me to uh, just kind of, I went back to my hotel room and I wrote the, the Alamo letter, which a lot of people read back yes. then. This was, you know, several years ago now. Um, just basically pleading with legislators, my locally elected officials, to to come to the aid of their public schools because we were just constantly having these dump truck loads of mandates and and harsh accountability dumped on us while resources were just reduced, reduced, reduced. And I and I think that trend has continued, you know, for the past eight nine years now. And I'm sure it was before that too. But but I've been paying attention since 2010. You're standing in front of the state Senate education chair and saying some pretty harsh things. Aren't you afraid of losing your job? You know, I think I had I had some sleepless nights after that where I worried about, you know, what, what could possibly be the consequences. But from the beginning, I realized, you know, I, I serve at the pleasure of my local school board, and my local school board was very supportive. And I, I didn't ask their permission before I mm-hmm. sent the Alamo letter. I just I just reacted, and I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I think my attitude was really, you know, I was a Spanish teacher. There are always going to be jobs for Spanish teachers in the state of Texas. So uh-huh. I just kind of thought in my mind, 
worst worst case scenario, I go back to doing what I've done for years anyway, and and I'm fine with that, you know. So I think I always had that as kind of a a safety net that I, I don't mind teaching. I, I enjoyed teaching, and I don't have to be a superintendent. I don't have to be a principal, you know. But my my local school board, when the letter went out, the the reaction was pretty monumental. So my school board members, you know, called me individually and gave me words of support and said they were, you know, proud of me. And, and that continued, you know, for the, I guess the six years I was there, I, I think uh, I had several times where board members said, Hey, keep doing what you're doing, you know? So that's that, great. You know, that, that helped me kind of over, but I did worry about, you know, the, the state determines whether or not my certification is valid. The state kind of determines whether or not mm-hmm. I get to retire and those sorts of things. So I, I did have some, sometimes where I would worry about that. And I still do when I, when something comes up and I speak out, I still have those those moments where I think, you know, maybe I should let somebody else, you know, be at the, the tip of the spear here, you know? <laughs> so what do you say to people who look at you holding the spear? I mean, especially for young teachers who are vehemently afraid of appearing before someone like you, their admin, over something that they said, especially to an elected official. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's ever really come up. I've really, really never had an issue with staff members saying anything half as, I guess, brash as the things I've said. So, <laughs> and and I and I realize, you know, based on on my history, you know, I'm I'm not gonna, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah. So if I've got a teacher who's who's out there advocating, I mean, I, way, way, way above and beyond my support for the teaching profession or, or my particular school district comes my support for our constitutional guarantees. So the, the way I look at it, uh, my, my teachers and their spouses, they, they have freedom of speech. I mean, it's the First Amendment. You know, if they want to go out and say, I disagree with this policy and they're, and they're on their time using their personal device and they're, you know, they're not using school resources to advocate, I'm not going to say anything. Now, you know, if they're, if they're out there being obscene or, or doing things that are going to be detrimental to their ability to, to serve children and, and be respected in our community, that's different. But really standing up for your rights, that's, that's going to win you points with me. It's not going to cost you any points. So just one last question. Where do you see us going from here, whether it's the advocacy campaign you started in Texas or just nationally in terms of education? Have we reached a tipping point? And if so, where does it tip to? Yeah, I really don't have any idea. We, we saw after 2010 pretty rapid reduction in the number of standardized tests and the, 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 the emphasis on standardized tests. But, you know, test-based accountability with, with you know, punitive edge to it hasn't gone away. Um, they've, they've backtracked a little bit. I think they realized that they, you know, bit off more than they could chew and bit off more than the public would support. So they've, they've definitely reversed a lot of it. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it's still there, and the, the inequity in funding is still there. So to me, the fundamental unfairness of the system really hasn't changed. We're, we're still going to give school A, you know, $1,000 less per pupil than school B, but they both have to hit the same targets on accountability. And, and I'll, un, until that is addressed, I'll always be opposed to the, the test-based accountability because it's, uh, you know, it has, a, it has an economic impact on, on, on everybody, not just on the school. I, I don't like it because, you know, the odds of me being the superintendent of a school with a with a less than stellar accountability rating or A through F grade now in Texas is new new thing we're going to. Yeah, I saw the it. odds of that happening are greater for me than for you know a colleague in a higher funded school yeah. just because of the funding difference, right? And so mm-hmm. you know, can I or can I not overcome that head start that the other school has? Well, 
maybe I can, maybe I can't, but I shouldn't have to, right? So I'm always mad about that, but it doesn't just affect me and my teachers and my students. It affects every homeowner and business owner in my community about it? because we're, we're set up to have a, you know, potentially worse grade on our school. Well, that what that means when, when that happens is people are not as, as eager to buy property in your community, so house values go down. Mm-hmm. People are not as eager to move their business to your community, so the job market for people who live here is going to be a little tighter than somewhere else. So it's really, to me, it's the this supposedly conservative government of Texas is picking winners and losers of communities, and they're, they're helping some communities get a leg up by giving them more funding for their schools so they can get a better grade. And to me, the whole thing is perverse. So that's that's still the, the fundamental basis of what we're doing is, is this really um, inappropriate, immoral, in my view, core at the, at the center of this thing. So uh, I, I don't know if that will ever change. I mean, I, the uprisings that we're seeing right now – um, in Oklahoma and West Virginia, the places where the teachers have started striking, demanding more, you know, better pay. But also in Oklahoma, they 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 got their better pay, but then they turned around and said, "No, we want better resources for our kids yeah. too." Yeah, I think that's great, and that's exactly what needs to happen. But it it really comes down to who we elect, and uh, we just had you know we just had some pretty important elections here in Texas, and there's there's a pretty powerful political action group, uh, Empower Texans is the name of it, and it's it's super, super conservative, but it's all, it, it's pro-voucher. They, they basically want public schools to go away and, right. and be replaced with kind of pop-up franchise schools that can be funded at a much lower lower rate. Um, and, and it really all comes down to that, that view that I talked about earlier where uh, public expenditures are seen as just an expense and not an investment in yeah. the future of our state and the, the well-being it. of our people. So it comes down to elections. Until we start electing better people, we're, we're going to keep having these, these fights. Well, hey, John Kuhn, Superintendent, Mineral Wells Independent School District down in Texas. The post-class podcast is part of the Educators Room Podcast (laughs) Network. Produced by Eric Semmel and Jake Miller. Music is by the band Elephants Dancing.